Indeed, we have considered the truths of this text already in song. So many fitting words and phrases that connect us to this call that we have as God's people here in Romans chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires." Father, open to our eyes the meaning of this text. May we grasp its significance for each of us. For those who are separated from Christ, bring conviction as you have to others through this passage. Bring them to the light of salvation in Jesus. For those of us who know Christ, may we consider how our lives have been transformed. And how the call upon us is so distinct from the world in which we live. And may we inculcate these instructions and grow in our walk with Jesus. We pray to this end that the Word of God would be used and Spirit of God that you would teach us and illumine Christ. May we give ourselves to this task in worship. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Be who you are by becoming who you will be. Be who you are by becoming who you will be. We could hang this sentence as a banner over Romans chapters 12 and 13. Earlier in the book, the Apostle Paul, as we remember, unpacks who we once were in our sinful depravity. We were enemies of God. We were sinners who broke His law. We were idolaters worshiping self. But God who is rich in mercy provides salvation from His just wrath against sinners. He does this by sending His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to take on sin. To die for us in our place, paying the penalty of our law-breaking rebellion against God. And rising from the dead, Jesus also gives us eternal life, forever defeating death and justifying all who put their trust in His salvation. 
As we learn in chapter 10, when we hear this message, when we believe this message to be true, when we come to trust in this message in faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. We die with Him to our old self and now are identified with a new Adam. We rise with Him to new spiritual life, regenerated, made alive in our union with Christ. And as Romans chapter 6-8 through eight then reveal, sin's bondage is then broken. United to Christ, our, that bondage is broken. Satan's tyrannical rule over us is ended. Our identity in Adam is exchanged for a new identity in Jesus Christ. And now we come to Romans chapters 12 through 13. And we are called here in these chapters, a unique section in the book of Romans, to be who you now are in Christ. United with Him, you are new. You're a new man, you're a new woman through faith in Him. Be who you are. But we must also see that this new life and identity in Christ is securely tethered to the future that God promises to us in Christ. Don't let that line go by too easily. To realize that our sanctification, our growth is connected to what is to come, not only to what has happened, which is gloriously necessary and beautiful and forever to be praised, the work of Jesus' death and resurrection, but our sanctification is also connected to what is to come. This connects, for instance, to chapter 8, verses 29-30. through 30. We will be ultimately glorified. We will be sucked up into the light of Christ forever, eventually. Not in a sense of nirvana, but in a sense of true fellowship in His presence forever. Now this future prospect is an unparalleled aspect of our Christian faith in union with our risen Savior. This is one of the hidden terrors of those who remain separated from Jesus. From what I read in our world, they kind of like the idea of be who you are. You hear a lot about that. But the thing down deep that's terrifying is they have no idea who they are becoming. They don't know where they're going apart from Christ. In that vacuum, then, many pursue religion. Others turn, say, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, some New Year's resolutions, and I'll become a better person. There are others who it gets more physical, and they kind of just rebrand themselves. They purchase new clothes and get a different kind of haircut and lose some weight. I'm going to become somebody I'm not. I'm going to change. There are those who appeal to a self-improvement program or in one way or the other try to change and develop who they are. This is a, really a twisted sense of what God ultimately wants to accomplish, but there's some yearning in the human heart to be different than I am. But again, the terror for someone separated from Christ is they have no idea who they're becoming. Maybe I'm on a totally wrong path here. And that's why you see people change over and again to some other program, some other means, some other way of remaking myself. Or maybe I should not be who I am because I'm becoming a nobody. I'm becoming a mere space filler. 
Or maybe in those really dark moments, maybe I'm becoming a monster. I don't know. Christians, united to Jesus Christ, we know. We know who we are going to be. We know who we are becoming. This is something that is settled and assured in our hearts. United to Christ, we have the high and secure calling of living the life that Jesus purchased for us now. But also know what He is making us to be. We will ultimately be with Him in eternity, in whose presence there is fullness of joy at whose right hand there are pleasures forevermore, and becoming like Christ, united with His glory. This is our future, and this changes everything today. I'm going to venture an illustration of it, which I find falls as short as it helps, but I hope it helps a little bit more. There's a lot of ways it could be mistaken, but it's almost in a sense like we're all down here in deep sea outfits at the bottom of the ocean where it's dark and murky. And everybody's down here with no way to get out or be delivered. We just live out our life until our air tank runs out and then it's done. And that's what many people think, how they look at life. It just, they just, we're just living it out, here we are. But the salvation in Christ could be pictured like someone comes and puts a tether to us and ties us to the ship of salvation that's at the top, where we can't really even see it, but it's way up there on the surface of the ocean. And there's a promise of life above. There is light that is dawning from above. As we look up and take a perspective that we've never seen before, that light is beginning to filter down through the water and reaches us down here. And on this tether, we begin to climb up to that boat of rescue, that final salvation It's a radically different approach to life in the deep sea compared to others. And there's the voice of people saying, join us, stay with us, remain here. That we see that there's a life to come. We're becoming something else. We're headed somewhere else. There is a rescue above. We'll come back to that picture. But we've considered what our new life looks like in chapters 12 through 13. And today we pick up the last two paragraphs of these two chapters, two exhortations reminding us of the life to which we have been called. The first centers on the theme of love. We're called here to honor God's will by loving all people, verses 8 through 10. Let's consider it again, verse 8, to owe to no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does Paul mean by the law? How do you read that? I think verse 9 makes it pretty clear that he speaks of the Mosaic laws. He's quoting it. He's epitomizing uh, it by these drawing from these Ten Commandments and looking at the second uh, panel of the law, which deals with our relationships. Loving others fulfills the requirements of God's law, of the Mosaic law, we could say, with respect to human relationships. Well, what does Paul mean by fulfill? We fulfill that law as we love others. He does not mean that loving others is the only command that God gives us, the only command that we need to obey. 
But I think he is saying that everything God's law seeks to accomplish in relationships is accomplished when we genuinely love one another. United to Jesus, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we no longer relate to others by the dictates of law. We're no longer driven merely by the desires of the flesh. But now we are ruled by the law of Christ, by the law of love. So if we faithfully love others, we're not going to commit adultery. If love pours out of our life, we are not going to murder, we're not going to steal, we're not going to covet. So law in that sense is fulfilled as we love one another. We might ask, what does it mean to love? And here we get kind of foggy in our culture. It gets a bit murky in the definition of what love is. And we have no opportunity here to go into great detail, but biblically speaking, love does not mean that we necessarily like someone. Love is not only or even necessarily a warm feeling or a strong sense of regard for someone. Not that we will find everyone to have a kindred spirit. It's not calling us to that. Love is ultimately the life of God flowing through us to do what is ultimately best for another. To serve God in this way is to love His love flowing through us, our fellowship with a God who is love, being poured out in self-giving for the good of the beloved. To love is to order my life, to build up, to help, to minister to, to correct even, to rebuke, and in many other ways to give myself away to people for their ultimate good. This is how we are to relate to all people. Who are we to love? Verse 10 speaks of loving our neighbor. We'll get to that in a moment. But it recalls Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. People providentially placed in our circle of influence. We are to allow the love of God to flow to them for their good. Now the primary focus here, I think, is on believers, loving believers. The the phrase, each other, and how it is used in the New Testament would indicate that, that that's the primary focus here. But again, that reference to neighbors, I I I think it's impossible not to recall Jesus' teaching on who a neighbor is. And a neighbor is anyone who providentially is brought into my influence, my contact. I am to pour out the love of God for their good at all times. Indeed, one of the most distinguishing features of biblical Christianity is what we are is that we are to love our neighbor, our neighbors but to love our enemies as well. So a neighbor is anyone that crosses my path and an enemy is someone who is opposed to me and against me. Who are you, Christian? You are someone who relates to an opponent in love. To pour out what is good and what is best, even for those who are enemies. We need to ask as well, on the basis of verse 8, what does it mean to owe no one anything? What does it mean to owe no one anything? Depending on how you read that and let that kind of sit in the air, if you read it so, so in this way, owe 
no one anything. As if there was a period there. There's a lot of Christians who's taken that to say it's sinful to incur debt. And they appeal to this verse repeatedly in their literature to teach this point that no one should ever take on any debt. It's against the will of God. This verse proves that. Now, there may be a thousand reasons for you not to borrow money, but this verse is not one of those reasons, I want to assure you. It does not forbid indebtedness. Owe to no one anything is not a period there. It is except to love each other. Notice that the word owe here is clearly connected to verses 6 and 7, isn't it? Because of this, you also pay taxes. Your conscience leads you to pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. So pay to all what is owed to them. What does that mean? It means you literally pay your taxes. You don't cheat on the tax return. You pay up the taxes that you owe. Pay revenue to whom revenue is owed. Again, a literal meaning. And then he says, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Everyone reading that verse honestly, verse 7, would realize that owed there is being used figuratively. Honor and respect owed. Figuratively speaking, we give to those who deserve that. We fill that up. Now when we get to verse 8, he's using owed the same way. In fact, I think what Paul is doing here is using this figurative sense in the transition to verse 8 in a clever way to transition to what he's now going to say. It's cleverness that's going on here, not a desire to keep someone from incurring debt. Owe to no one anything is connected, I think, very contextually to respect and to honor in verse 7. But the point is, except to love each other, So as we give respect and as we give honor, so we are to give love. We owe this in a figurative sense of speaking. So yes, we should pay our taxes and fees. We should also honor and respect our authorities. But there is one sort of debt that we will never repay. We'll never satisfy it. And that is the debt of love that we owe to one another. I'm not going to go into a lot of stirring up on that point. But I'm pretty confident that every one of us would have something to consider there. That there's probably somebody you stop loving because you don't think they deserve it. Never, ever will we satisfy the call to love. Not even with an enemy. Not even with a persecutor. Certainly not with a neighbor. Certainly not with our church. Certainly not in our homes. Oh, no one anything but to love one another. So anyone who claims it is sinful to have a mortgage on your home or to take out a loan for college on the force of Romans 13 and verse 8 is misinterpreting this verse. Now again, there may be a thousand reasons why you shouldn't do those things. And debt is a major significant problem. But Romans 8, 13, or 13.8 is not taking that off the table by making it a sin to do so. He is simply saying we must love one another. 
And we must never say, I'm done loving. I don't need to love that person anymore. That's not who you are in Christ. That's not who Jesus is with any enemy, with any child. And so we in Him are not to respond that way. What does this look like negatively? Verse 10, he says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's very simple, but that is understandable. We're not to do what's wrong. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We see again the emphasis upon the law. It is God's will that we do no wrong to anyone, but that we do good to all, and sometimes that means overcoming evil with good. Chapter 12 and verse 21. So verses 8 through 10 are clearly linked by the theme of love fulfilling the law. Verses 11 through 14 now are linked to the theme of our promised future. Verses 11 to 14 form the other end of chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you'd like to refer back there, he says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Verses 11 to 14 of chapter 13 now form the other bookend and encapsulate and enclose these two chapters in this unique way. The unique way is 12, 1 and 2 lead us to look back to what Christ has done. Chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, lead us to look forward to what Christ will do. There's more to these verses than just looking forward, but that's the theme that holds it together, that we carry through. So secondly, along with love, honoring God's will by loving all people, is light, anticipate the final glory by living purely. Verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. Maybe you just woke up, I don't know, but (laughs) I wasn't talking to you personally if that was the case. But wake out of sleep, he says to us, right? Paul speaks truth here that his readers already know, verse 11, that the hour has come. A reference to the new age of redemption in Christ. And then to wake from sleep. The figure of speech for spiritual lethargy, insensitivity, and ignorance. Christ never encourages His followers to coast. He never encourages us that it's all right to remain spiritually dull to the truth. There's a bit of a conundrum there sometimes when I say I don't feel it. I'm not driven. The zeal isn't there spiritually. And yet the Bible continues to come back and speak to us this way. Wake up! Stir yourself up. In zeal, live for God. And why is this? What does he say? because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. In the past we believed and were saved, but Paul speaks here of the day of final salvation, when we enter God's presence and our redemption is completed by glorification. So the night is far gone. The idea is that the light of Christ is now beginning to shine in this world. 
The night, the fallen, sinful world, this present evil age, nears its final destination, its final destruction, and the day is at hand. The day when Christ returns in triumph. That day is absolutely certain, and our faith rests on that promise, but we do not know the timing, but not knowing the timing is to cause us to live in anticipation. That day is so certain, it is as if its light is already shining on us, calling us to resist the evil of this age. So if it's helpful, I'm down on the ocean floor, and I'm in the murky darkness among others that are there, but there's this tether, this line, that I can begin to climb up toward the light. And I see that light beginning to filter down. This is, in a sense, the picture, the coming of Christ. To change the analogy, that early dawn where the light just begins to penetrate the darkness. That's where we live now. Christ has come. He's already here. We've been united with Him, and yet He's not here. There's a coming day when He will return. And so that day, as we look to that day, as we climb to the light, we live in the light, whatever analogy we would use, we are slowly making our way toward the light that is approaching the coming of Christ. Today, we're a day closer. Every breath, we're one breath nearer to this ultimate end. But that's our tether. That's the line that we have that's absolutely secure. We do know what we are becoming. We do know where we are headed. We do know who we will be one day in His presence. And we cling to this future prospect. So the imperatives now that follow from these statements in chapter 13, 11 through 12a. Notice the second part of verse 12 then, the imperatives that follow. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Keep rising to the light. Don't listen to the voices of moral darkness that call you down into the dark, murky waters below where death reigns. What is Paul saying? Let's get real specific, he seems to be thinking here. Verse 13, here's what I'm talking about. Here's life down on the ocean floor. It is this, let us walk, verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Orgies, that is wild, unrestrained partying, carousing, godless revelry. Such activities epitomize godless hearts given over to sin, not pure hearts devoted to Christ. This is how people live when they're in the darkness. They give themselves away to whatever sensual pleasure they want to chase and they pull one another down into immorality of all sorts. That's the darkness. That's not who you are. And that's certainly not who you're becoming. So cast that off. Set that aside. Don't listen to those voices that would draw you into that. The carousing and drunken revelry the sexual experiences outside of wedlock that are for pure pleasure and tear people to shreds, the sensuality, the giving over to laziness, the giving over to whatever moves me physically, and then the quarreling and the jealousy. 
It might be the pursuit of pleasures, the pursuit of escapes that are godless in their orientation, or it may be the infighting that takes place in a home or a church or a community. Don't give yourself to these things, the quarreling and the jealousy. Put all of that off, but verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's kind of a strange statement in some way. We are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to clothe ourselves with Jesus. There's a sense again of this already and not yet. That's already happened. We've been united with Christ through faith. We've been joined to Him when we trusted Him as Savior. We're united to His death and His resurrection. You can't put Jesus on any more than that. But in another sense, we have to keep doing it. So it's a, it is a both and, and it troubles people sometimes. Well, what is it? Is this a done thing or is it something that we're doing? It's a done thing. We're united to Christ. We will never be disunited from Him as a genuine believer, but we also continue to put Him on in practice to be clothed with Christ and His way to be clothed with Christ and His purposes. We're to be who we are then in Jesus as we look back in time, but we're also to be who we are becoming in the light of our future salvation. So negatively, in view of the fallen world that we now occupy, what does that mean to put on Christ? Verse 14, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What is the flesh? I think I've asked every seminary prof that I've ever had, and I've had a lot of them. I think I've asked all of them that question. I've never got an entirely satisfying answer. And I mean some really good theologians. It almost defies definition, and yet we know what the flesh is as well. We know enough of what it is. It speaks of our continuing vulnerability to temptation and sin while we inhabit a fallen body, retain imperfect hearts for now, and occupy a corrupt and fallen world. As believers, we remain susceptible to the flesh, although we are not long in it. We are not in it. I should say it that way. That is, we are given a new identity in the new Adam, Jesus Christ. So we're not in the flesh as an identity. And yet, in another sense, and the word flesh is used in a lot of different ways in the New Testament, in another sense, we are vulnerable in the flesh to the temptations of sin. So at conversion, we become new creatures in Christ, liberated from our old master, Satan, and yet we are not yet glorified. It's like we're the sea diver that's climbing up toward the light. We're tethered there, we're going there, but we're still underwater. And there's still a capacity for us to lose progress and to tap into this world. We recognize by faith that the light of Christ's final conquest has dawned in this dark world. And we know that His final victory has been secured and that we will be glorified. And so in hope of that future day, a day whose rays of light are already dawning, we must put away the works of darkness, not pursue sinfulness, but we must order our lives against gratifying the cravings of sensuality and self-indulgence and anger and jealousy and hatred 
and all that chapters 12 through 13 consider that teach us to avoid. Now, this is a thing of faith. Look around in this world and you're not going to see this. You look around in this world and people have these freedoms. Why should I not have this freedom? People are doing this. Why should I not join them and do these very things? There's a call to join the community of the godless. They'll always be calling you not to climb the rope, not to keep moving toward Christ, not to see the light that is shining in, but by faith we know it is. And you may find yourself today struggling with sin. And you say, the sensuality is overwhelming me. I'm giving myself to what I should not. I'm filled with jealousy. I'm filled with hatred. I'm filled with the struggles of this fallen world. This isn't a waste of time here. It's not just nice little thoughts that we tuck away and forget about. The light of Christ is here. That light is dawning. It's in your world, and by faith you need to come to reckon that true. To consider that true in your struggle with sin. To know that you are to be who you are in Christ. It is a matter of faith. You don't sense it all of the time, but you're to be who you are in Christ by becoming who you will be. Tethered to that future, knowing what our future will be, we move toward it in faith. We count this to be true because Christ has revealed it and there is a power in this that does continually liberate us from sin and its attraction. And so tethered to the ship above, what's up there? We can't really even describe it. But we're coming out of these murky waters and we're going to break through that water surface up to a world of light and sun and beauty. Just imagine it, Minnesotans. You know, a day when the water's not where you can't walk on it. But you're in the, you're in the ocean. It's a beautiful summer day and on the deck there's all kinds of people who will cheer your breaking through the surface of that water. And there's a banquet spread on the deck and it is a beautiful summer reception. That's there. That's coming. We have that confidence in that Jesus defeated death, in that He promises to come and to rescue us, in that glory is a done deal for His people. It's already secured by Christ, chapter 8, 29-30. That's what is awaiting us. That, when you set your mind there, when you arm yourself with light, casting off the works of darkness, putting on the armor of light, you're orienting your life to what God has revealed. And this isn't a waste of time. This is a reality by which to calibrate life. So the strategy that we're learning here is a strategy of faith. It's not a moralistic code. Be good boys and girls. Love other people. Live in the light. It's not that. It's that this is the reality that Christ has secured. 
He has defeated the darkness. He has brought you into Himself, into His death and resurrection. The light is dawning here, and we're moving toward that light, and we will one day break through that surface, so to speak, into glory. To live an enthusiastic response to who we will be, clothing ourselves here and now with the armor of light, is our calling Be patient, sin struggler, as I with you slog along. This won't change things overnight, but I encourage you, lock on to what you are becoming and let that change the way that you ascend, the way that you move toward Christ and glory. It's possible that the sin with which you struggle is an impossible battle. Because you're not united to Christ. You fight against the things you know you shouldn't be. You have desires you know you shouldn't have. But there is no victory over sin. There is no deliverance that you've ever sensed. The great theologian Augustine was right there. He struggled with sensuality unlike most. He gave himself away to the pleasures of the flesh and to sin, and he followed his desires to horrible ends. But there was no liberation for him. There was no way out of it. He couldn't live any other way. Saying to Augustine, be a good boy, just didn't work. It wasn't just this text, but... Through a series of events, he came to the place where he found himself to be in utter bondage to sin. And in the mercy and providence of God, these verses 13 and 14 were read and Augustine was delivered. He was united to Christ. He put on Jesus in that moment and God gave him immense capacities to live righteously after he met Christ. But for those of us who have, the question we need to ask here is, who are you struggling to love? You know who that is. Let the name come to mind. Let the face come to your vision. Who do you want to curse? Who do you want to take vengeance on? What godless, fleshly, sinful habits are you fighting? Identify these things in light of what we've been called to do here. The answer in part is to know who you are. To see your identity in Jesus Christ and to live out who you are. The answer in part is also to actively respond in word, attitude, deed, ambition, and affection to the reality that one day I will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now it sure doesn't feel like that today for me. Does it for you? But I know in faith that that's where I'm headed. I know what's above the surface, or I know what is there when I pierce eternity. I know what happens when Christ pierces this world again and returns. I know that. He's promised it. And I live in light of that promise. Be who you are by becoming who you will be. Look to the light. Clothe yourself with it. Not to escape the world but to illuminate. Not to reject the world, but to truly love it. 
to love others not for what you can get in return or manipulate out of them, but to love them as the new creature that you are in Jesus Christ. To live righteously, not to earn your salvation, but to move toward that light. And as you do, that light sketches itself on your face, so to speak. Little by little, we take on that light and we reflect it back in a dark world. Christian, in the name of Jesus, I call you with the Apostle Paul to love people and to walk in the light of the redemption that draws closer with every breath by God's grace. Let's pray. We're thankful, Lord, for this exhortation to us, this directive of how to order our lives. We need it. We need this constant reminder. It must equip us for suffering. It must equip us for the attacks that come to our faith. It must equip us in the dark times as well as here as we sit together as your people agreeing on what your word has said. Lord, we need you and we ask that you would work in and through these words to transform and develop and mature us. I pray that we would be building each other up in the faith today. And as we break here, that those words will edify, that we will encourage each other this day to walk in love and in light. Lord, for those that are caught in a web of sin, I pray that you would help them not to fight that sin in the flesh, with the flesh, but I pray that they would fight that sin in faith. I pray that they would trust the way that you have laid out for them. And for those who know not Christ, may these words of deliverance and light set them free. Hearing the word of Christ crucified and risen, sensing the deliverance that he has provided, may they come to embrace that truth today. And may you set them free and set them on the journey to light. We praise you that Christ's light permeates this world. While it is dull in one sense, figuratively speaking, while it is still yet dawning, we know that the night is far gone. And we rejoice to know of the victory of Christ that is seen everywhere in this world as believers live righteously and faithfully. Lord, I pray that we would bespeak the victory of Christ everywhere that we go in the words that we say, in the actions that people observe, in the light that is sketched on our face, may it shine brightly for the glory of your name in light of the future that you've secured for us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.